on the screen coming up right now of a man named Eugene Lang. Some of you may know this name. Eugene Lang uh, was a pioneer in technology of creating barcode scanners and credit card verification systems and uh, played a big role in even VCRs and camcorders. Can we just have a moment of silence for some of these things, right? Forbes magazine called him a quintessential entrepreneur. It's like everything this guy touched turned to gold. He grew up in Harlem, New York. And that's where he went to school, kindergarten through 12th grade. So in 1981, he was asked to go back to the school that he went to and to speak to the graduating sixth graders. There were 61 of them. So we went to speak at their graduation service, and he went with a speech that I and many of us would probably write if we were talking to sixth graders who were graduating or even middle school or high schoolers who were graduating. He went with a speech, prepared to tell them and talk to them about work ethic and if you work hard enough, that you will succeed in life. But on his way up to the podium, the principal told him, as you look out at these sixth graders today, 75% of them won't graduate high school. She said, if the trend continues the way the trend has been, only about a dozen of these kids out there that you're talking to today will graduate high school. So in that moment, he threw out his entire speech he had prepared. And he did something different. He stood up in front of those sixth graders and he said, he made this promise. He said, if you will finish high school, I will pay your tuition in college. And some of you may remember back in the 80s, this got picked up by the New York Times. They ran specials on this, 60 Minutes ran a segment. And it became the I Have a Dream Foundation, which took off in over half of the states throughout the United States. Tens of thousands of students have benefited from people who have made this promise that if they would graduate high school, tuition would be paid for. Of those 61, 56 of those 61 have stayed connected to the organization for decades. Over 90% of them graduated from high school. Over 60% went on to complete college. And most of those students today hold what I think we would consider to be meaningful, sustaining jobs. Because there was a man in a moment who chose to offer hope to these kids. Right? In some ways, he may have been an insider that he went to the same school, but in a lot of ways, he was the outsider who stepped in to offer hope. So we're in the season of Advent leading up to Christmas. And I think God loves the season of Advent. I don't think God is a seasonless God. I think there are seasons of the year that God really likes. And it's not that God prefers Easter or Advent over other days because maybe there are more things God can do on those days and other days. I don't think God takes any days off. But I think the season of Advent, God knows that all around the world there are pictures that are being painted. Right? That there are images that are play, being placed in front of people. That there are stories that are being told that offer hope to the world. It's a season that Mary literally carried hope into the world. It's a season that we get to carry hope into the world. So you have this image, and we talked about it last week in Luke chapter 1, where Mary goes to visit a relative Elizabeth, and as she walks in the house, there's this connection that happens between Mary and Elizabeth, and the only way we know about this connection is that Mary and Elizabeth would go on to tell the story. That Elizabeth would tell the story of the movement of God that she felt in her body. And the Elizabeth is making a claim in that moment that her Lord is inside of Mary. How much faith did it take for her to believe that? And in the moment, Elizabeth speaks a blessing over Mary. And it just makes me wonder, is it the only time in Mary's life over those few months that there was human affirmation about what was being done in her life? Because there was a scandal 
Like, I don't know how many people had written her off or had shunned her, but now it's Elizabeth who's speaking blessing over her. And I hope that, I hope everyone participating today, that you have someone in your life who recently has told you how loved you are, how valued you are, that you are on this world, that you bring something good to this world because God is in you. There was affirmation that came upon her. And if you read the Gospel of Luke, in the first two chapters, it's like a musical breaks out. Zechariah singing a song. Yeah, Simeon, it's like he sings this song. And then Mary sings this song. And we sung today that is sung all over the world. It has been for years. In fact, Scott McKnight writes in a book that there have been countries throughout 2,000 years who at times, the leaders of those countries have made laws where you cannot sing the Magnificat. Because if people take it seriously, it is not good for those who are in positions of power. And here's how the song goes in Luke chapter 1. The statement goes, and just look at the themes that emerge from this. There are 10 verses. starts in verse 46. There are themes that emerge. Here is a young woman who just by the things she says, you can tell she has an understanding of the story of God. And it goes like this. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I wonder what it took for Mary to acknowledge in that moment that God is the Lord and that she is in need of a Savior. She needs a Savior. And I think Mary is crying out for herself, but she is also speaking words that are true for the people of Israel, for the people of God. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation he has performed mighty deeds with his arm he has scattered those who were proud in their inmost thoughts and here's this line he has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the lowly lifted up the humble he has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty he has helped his servant israel remembering to be merciful to abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors there are some who call this the gospel before the gospel. There are some who argue that the rest of the gospel of Luke builds off this song that Mary sings. Scott McKnight says this, that Mary's song is an expression of gratitude for God morphing her bad reputation into a messianic vocation. That we serve a God who can morph and transform any reputation into the work of God. And her song does that. Now in the moment, it's not like Mary's just creating from scratch. She's building off songs that she had heard throughout her life. Songs that have been sung over her. Songs that have been sung in religious space. In 1 Samuel 2 verse 8, Hannah, who was a woman who was also barren, much like Elizabeth. Who you have this scene in 1 Samuel chapter 1 of her crying out to God and they think she is drunk because of the way she was crying. And in 1 Samuel 2 verse 8, Hannah says this, that God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sits them with princes and has them inherit the throne of honor. In Psalm 113, 5 through 9, listen to this. It says, Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sits them with princes, with the princes of his people. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. So there were those, some, who because of 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, and what Hannah sings, there are some who make the argument that they think Elizabeth wrote the song of Mary. 
Even though it's attributed to Mary, they think Elizabeth wrote it because Elizabeth would have connected with who Hannah is. Now, I think tradition and even the way Luke tells the story is this is Mary's song. And I don't know if Elizabeth played a part in crafting it or not, but it comes across and it tells the story of what God has done. Now, Mary would have been fully aware of, she was living in a time of where there had been a, a flurry of just rebellious movements. that We know from the year 4 B.C., to 6 AD. So there was about a decade around the birth of Jesus where there were a lot of different rebellions. There were Jews who claimed to be the Messiah, who tried to lead movements, and every movement that, try, that they tried to lead against the Roman Empire didn't turn out well. There was a lot of destruction. And Jesus was also born in the time of Herod the Great, and Mary and others would have been fully aware of who Herod the Great was. He was a local leader, commissioned by Rome to lead that area. And if you were a local leader under the Roman Empire, the last thing you want to be known as is a soft leader. Herod was anything but that. Herod claimed to be the king of the Jews. Herod the Great, there are history stories that tell us that this is a man who had two son-in-laws executed. Now some of you may think in-laws, they can come and go, right? Two son-in-laws he had executed. And Matthew tells you a story in Matthew chapter 2. Of there's this moment in Bethlehem where King Herod felt threatened, so he sent people in, he sent his soldiers in to execute every child who was two years old and under. Now, this was Bethlehem, so it wasn't a big town. There weren't many people there. But how many babies would it have taken to be massacred for there to be a lot of mourning and grief? You would think just one would be enough, right? And even though this story isn't told in any other history book, so there are some who don't think the story actually happened. There are some who think Matthew's just trying to connect the birth of Jesus to the birth of Moses where something similar happens. But we're led to believe that this is something that happened in Bethlehem, even though no history book tells it. If you've read history books about King Herod, you can't put it past the guy. He's capable of it. Had two son-in-laws executed. Not only that, had one of his own wives executed. Two of his sons he had executed. Five days before Herod died, he knew he was sick and dying. Five days before he died, he had them go out and just arrest random citizens. And they held them. And the command was that the moment he died, they were to be executed because their executions would mean there would be that much more mourning and grief throughout the city. This is a crazy guy. And Mary knew how the story of God goes. Mary was a woman who believed in the justice of God, that God's going to come and God's going to set things right. So when Mary starts singing about how there's a God who brings those who are powerful down from their thrones and a God who lifts up the, whole, the, the lowly and a God who fills the humble and the hungry with good things, like Mary is speaking and even singing about social revolution that God's going to bring that's going to be good for the entire world. There were probably a lot of things that Mary didn't know. But Mary believed in the faithfulness of God. And when Mary sings her song, she sings a song about mercy. It's something that shows up twice. She sings about the mercy of God. She sings in a way that she believes that dignity and worth is something that is extended to every human being, no matter their status. Now, we're led to believe that Mary was a poor woman. We know that Mary married into poverty. And we know that because when they brought Jesus to the temple to be sacrificed, we're told that they brought a very specific sacrifice. In Luke chapter 2, verse 22 through 24, it says this, When the time came 
for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, they, Mary and Joseph, took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. That that was the sacrifice they brought for the birth of Jesus. And we know from Leviticus chapter 12 that it says this in the law, that if she, the mother of the child, the mother of the firstborn son, if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. So we're told by Luke, like Luke lets you in on the details so that you know, unless Joseph and Mary cheated on their taxes and fibbed about their W-9s, unless they did that, they're a family that they were poor. So what does this say about God? That God could have entered the world through a palace with an announcement where thousands of people would have known. But instead, God chose to enter into the world through the poor who didn't have much status and didn't have loud microphones to shout at the world. In the Gospel of Luke, Now, there are those who say that in the Bible, one of every ten verses speak to or about the poor and the vulnerable. In the Gospel of Luke, it's about one of every six verses. In Luke, the poor are not projects. They are not victims. They aren't characters for pity. They are carriers of the good news of Jesus. Literal carriers. They are examples of faithfulness. They are blessed. They aren't given instruction manuals on how to escape from poverty. They are taught that there is dignity and worth no matter where you are in life. They are given value. And of all the communities for God to choose to step into the world, He chose the poor. So what does it say about God? And for Luke, I think the reason Luke tells you some of this stuff in the birth narrative of Jesus is that this isn't just an exception of how God chose to work in the birth of Jesus throughout the rest of Luke, God's going to work through the poor. There's this big theme in Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, it's not the wise men who come to visit Jesus when he's born. It's the shepherds. Poor shepherds who come to visit Jesus when he's born. In the Gospel of Luke, what Jesus does to announce his public ministry in Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19 is Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has sent me to preach good news to the poor. Bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. In Luke chapter 6, verse 20, when Luke has Jesus give his form of the Beatitudes that you read in Matthew chapter 5, in Luke's version, it's not Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's blessed are the poor, and blessed are the hungry, and blessed are those who mourn. Three different times in the Gospel of Luke, there is a command that Jesus gives someone or a group of people of sell everything you have and give to the poor. It's all throughout the Gospel of Luke. And it carries on into the book of Acts. Now, in Luke and Acts, Luke tells more stories about the poor than anyone else. And in Luke and Acts, Luke also tells more stories about wealthy people than anyone else. And occasionally there are warnings to wealthy people, but in Luke and Acts there are also examples of wealthy people who have chosen to do good things with what they have. And they're a blessing to the world. So for Luke... It's not a sin to be wealthy. 
is that you make sure in your life with God that you are living out what it means to be rich toward God, not just rich toward your people. Rich toward God. So this isn't just an exception for Luke. There's a, an anonymous, uh, I guess, poem that was written a few years ago in which someone detailed this, working off of a parable Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25. And it says, I was hungry and you formed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. Thank you. I was imprisoned and you crept off quietly to your chapel in the cellar and prayed for my release. I was naked and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless and you preached to me of a spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy and so close to God, but I'm still hungry and lonely and cold. So Casey and I got married in 2002. Uh, we had just finished our junior year of college, so our first year of marriage, we were seniors in college, and we didn't have savings, we didn't have an inheritance. That first year of our marriage, we lived on $11,000. We had a little one-bedroom apartment that we paid $275 for. I've never seen more roaches in my entire life, which Casey and I knew if we can make it through this, we can survive anything together. Now, technically, our first year of marriage, Casey and I would have classified as the poor. Uh, but Casey and I also knew that we were somewhat in a place of privilege because we knew, and this didn't happen to us, but we knew if there was a season of our, of our in that first year of marriage, if there, were, if there was a season in life that we were unable to pay rent or utilities or to have food on the table or put gas in our cars, that there were dozens of people we could have reached out to who would have taken care of our needs. There are millions of poor people around the world today who don't have that. The next year of our marriage, we moved into a townhome. We paid $450 a month. And we were so excited that now we had two bedrooms, not just one. And we lived in that place for two years. And then uh, just some things started happening in this neighborhood where we lived with all these townhomes. There was a huge gun raid. We had a neighbor who hung himself, who lived next to us. We had a, a drug deal that went bad a couple of townhomes down and a, a truck one day drove through the living room of this house. We were home. I was climbing over debris in that living room looking for bodies when I saw a three-year-old kid walk down the stairs looking for their dad. And, and it was then that Casey was like, I just, I don't think we can take this anymore. So on Good Friday of 2005, we chose that we, we've got to get out of here. We've got to move. So we did. And little did we know that five years later, we would be in Memphis, sitting in a living room with Jim and Stacy Hinkle in Arlington, Tennessee, talking about selling our homes and moving into an under-resourced community in the city of Memphis. And a little over a decade ago, we did. And living in Binghampton now for over a decade has taught us so many things. It's given us a way to see the world. It's also grown our awareness for systematic and systemic issues. We don't live in a neighborhood of privilege. It can take longer to get things done in our neighborhood than other neighborhoods. It's taught us about food deserts and sometimes the challenge of families having healthy food that if you were to ask me if I live close to a grocery store, I would tell you, yes, in five minutes I can be in my car and I can be at Kroger. But for many of my neighbors who don't have adequate transportation, the thought of walking a mile and a half to get groceries and bring them home can become a real challenge. 
I, I'm also fully aware of the privilege Casey and I have that if today we chose to sell our home, we couldn't move to any neighborhood in, in Shelby County, but there are a lot of neighborhoods we could move into. A lot of people who are living in poverty today throughout Memphis don't have that privilege. Casey and I, have our, our home has been broken into. We've had a car broken into. We've had windows that have been broken. So there have been moments we've had to ask God not to let our hearts get hard, to stay soft and to stay compassionate. And I think for us, one thing we have learned over 10 years, not just in Binghampton, but one thing God has kept teaching us is, you want to know where God's at work? Keep your eyes open, because a lot of times it's a places you would never expect. It's true in the story of Mary carrying Jesus. God entered into the world in a place and through a person you would never expect. Today, God is doing things in places and in people and all over this city that you would never expect. So whenever you engage the Bible, whenever you read even like the birth narrative of Jesus, I think the best question to ask is, what does this say about God? What does this do to my heart? And who is this good news for? And the birth narrative of Jesus is good for the entire world. It's good for everybody. So a couple of years ago, John French told me that, that there was a story I needed to read up on. It's about Father Damien. And Father Damien is born, his name was Joseph. He's born in Belgium in 1840. So we're talking about years ago. And this was a guy early on in his life. He and his brother felt a call in the ministry. And his brother was sent to be set was set to be sent to the Hawaiian Islands to do ministry. This is back in the 1860s. So it wasn't even called the Hawaiian Islands, but that's where he was going to be sent to do ministry. But his brother got sick, so Joseph decided to, that he would go in his brother's place. It's a sacrifice some of us just got to make sometimes, right? If you can't go do ministry in Hawaii, maybe I should go in your place, right? So he did. He went to Honolulu, ended up on the big island, where for eight years, that's where he did ministry preach sermons, pastor people. But then he heard that there was this other island. That this was a, a small little remote island where the people on the Hawaiian islands who were suffering from leprosy, that they were sent. It was a colony of 700 people. And this was like 150 years ago. So there were a lot of things about illnesses and disease that people were unaware of. So if you ended up with leprosy, they put you on a boat and they sent you to this remote island where basically you were sent there to live in a colony and to wait until you would die. So Father Damien and three other people volunteered. They weren't commissioned. They volunteered to go and to serve that community. And Father Damien knew that one of the first things he had to do is that there had to be a shift in thinking that this is not an island where people go to die. This is an island where people learn to live. And that was a shift that was hard to help people believe. So the way he helped do it, the moment he got there, they started building houses for people. They constructed a water system. They planted trees and gardens. He started a school where people could learn and be educated and then there could be fun experiences for people. So he started bands and choruses, like ways for people to use their gifts. So now it became this island where people didn't just go to die, 
that they went to live. For 12 years, he lived among those people, faithfully serving them. And then 12 years in, he got leprosy. Which leprosy is not a highly contagious disease. But Father Damon, and you could read stories, you could even watch a movie on him, he did not have good hygiene, didn't wash his hands. And when I say he lived among the people, this dude lived among the people. Like would share food with them at the table. They would drink after one another like he was one of them. So 12 years in, he got leprosy. And it's what ended up taking his own life. But he lived among people to teach them and to help them know this is not just where you go to die. But I want you to have hope that this is where you go to live. And what better season of the year for us to understand that God came to bring hope to the world, to teach us how to live. So there are two different ways this can go today. And I want to invite you to go ahead and take the bread and the cup. Just hold them in your hand for a moment. If you're online with us, if you're virtual, if you have the bread and the cup close to you, if you'll take those, if not, just stay with us in this moment. And there are two different ways this can go for you. Some of you need to hold the bread and cup this morning and you need to be reminded that God has stepped into your world. God has brought hope to you. God is bringing hope to you. And maybe you have forgotten that or you need the reminder that God stepped into this world 2,000 years ago and there is no world that God is not willing to step into now. And for some of us, what we need to know today is that when God steps into the world to bring hope, it's not just to make your world better, it's to bless the world. So through the bread and the cup today, maybe God can open our eyes to see where are those places in our lives where we become the carriers of hope. Like where do we need to carry hope this week? Who in our world is in need of some kind of hope that God has appointed you to be that carrier and has empowered you with what it takes to do it? This morning, if you're online or you're in person and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, there's a way to check. A, uh, you can go online. You can let us know if you're interested in surrendering your life to Christ and to be baptized into Christ. If you're in person, we have a shepherd who will be in the back to receive you after this service. But right now, will you close your eyes and bow your heads and let's come to the table together. Where God, in this moment, we are reminded that you are the ultimate hope carrier and hope giver. You stepped into our world, not reluctantly, willingly. You lived among us, died for us, rose from the dead. You have filled us with your Holy Spirit. It reminds us every day that we're not just here going through the motions. You are teaching us how to live. So in this moment, may this bread and this cup Remind us of what Jesus has done and bring us to life in every way imaginable. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Please take the bread and cup.